Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As Brian was saying, I will continue the series that Pastor Stephen started on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, when Pastor Stephen asked me, would you rather do 1 Corinthians or your own thing? I had to think about it because I heard a pastor one day, he was preaching, and he said, if you don't have at least 20 years of experience under your belt, do not touch 1 Corinthians. And I only have 13. So I'm going to do this with fear and trembling, much humility, but I'm thankful for this opportunity. I'm going to show you one slide so that you know the context where we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. Please bring it up. We have covered all those sections. And where are we today? Anybody can tell me? The conclusion. Wonderful. You were paying attention all these weeks. Very good. We are in the conclusion. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 21. Now that you have the context, you can take that away. And we will read our verse for this morning, beginning in verse 6. Let me find it first. I always do that. I ask you to find it, and then I don't. Beginning verse 6, chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 
What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Would you pray with me? Father, as we consider these words, we come to you because we need your help. I know I do, and I know we all do. We need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Father, keep me from error. May the truth be proclaimed faithfully and purely. And may our hearts be renewed in a greater and deeper love for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, as you have heard many times from Pastor Stephen, the church at Corinth had several problems. Many things happening in the church. But up until this point in the letter, we know that the Apostle Paul has been dealing with one specific issue, and that was the issue of divisions in the church. It is most certainly not the only problem they had, and we will see that in the weeks ahead, but it has been the focal point of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And so this morning, we find ourselves in the conclusion of the first section of the letter, running from chapter 4, verse 6 through verse 21. Now, in this conclusion... Paul will bring his discussion about divisions to a close. However, as you probably noticed, Paul doesn't mention the subject of division directly or by name in these verses. Rather, Paul addresses the root cause of all division in any church, namely self-conceit. I submit to you that self-conceit or pride, is at the very heart of all divisions, both in the church and in relationships in general. What is self-conceit? One dictionary defines it as undue pride in oneself. Undue pride in oneself. Another dictionary defines it, uh, defines it as an excessive appreciation of one's worth or virtue. I like to define it define it as the clearest manifestation of self-idolatry, self-conceit. In other words, self-conceit is to make much of yourself, to make much of yourself, or to think highly of yourself. It is closely related to arrogance, which is the term Paul uses to refer to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 2. Let's read it very briefly. And you are arrogant. That's how he refers to them. You are arrogant. So it is closely related. Therefore, Paul will conclude this major section by attacking the very root of all divisions, namely pride or self-conceit. Now, what is Paul's chosen method to accomplish his goal? How does he go about this? It is actually very simple. He will take a very simple approach. In essence, what Paul is going to do is to extend an invitation to you and me and to the Corinthians. What is the invitation? is very simple, yet very effective. And this is the invitation. Just think about the foolishness of self-conceit. Just take a moment and think about the absolute insanity of any Christian acting in a prideful, self-conceited way. It is as though Paul will walk us through the logic 
of doing this or the lack of logic of becoming self-conceited and arrogant and prideful is absolute foolishness. And so he will make his case by giving us four reasons why this is true. Why self-conceit and pride is absolute, utter foolishness. His argument has four elements. And let me give you the first one. Self-conceit, pride, arrogance is absolute foolishness because, number one, it denies the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. Let me read verses six through seven once again. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, pay careful attention to the questions in verse 7. Essentially, Paul is saying this, you guys are divided up into small groups, and you think you're better than this person or that group, and that your gifts are better than this person's or that group. You're full of yourselves. But why? Let's just think about this. Let's think about it. Who is there that actually thinks you are better other than yourselves? What standard are you using? And even more to the point, think about the second question he asked in verse 7. Even if you are, in fact, more gifted... Let's just say I grant you this point. Even if you are more gifted, maybe you are better looking. Maybe you are more popular than those around you. Let's just say that is true. Who gave you all that? Just take a moment to think about it. Why do you act as though it is not entirely a gift from the creator? But these are basic questions, aren't they? Extremely basic. This is theology 101. Why would Paul ask questions so basic? Think about this. That God is author of life and the giver of all good things is so basic that when Paul came to Athens, remember? And he talked to the, the, the idolatrous people of Athens. He quoted a pagan poet. And what did the poet said? We are God's offspring. Even a pagan poet knows this basic, basic theological concept that we all come from God and everything we have comes from God because Paul quoted him in the context of his discussion about the fact that God is the sustainer of all things. So even a pagan poet knows this basic truth. Everything we have, we have from God. I don't think it is an exaggeration to conclude that the Corinthians had grown so prideful and so self-conceited that they were beginning to forget the basic Christian principle that God is the creator, we are the creatures. This is basic Christian theology. But Paul is here giving us a clue into all pride and all self-conceit, which is, in turn leads to divisions. Think about this. When I begin to forget that God is the giver of all things and that I am the receiver of what he gives, when I forget that, I begin to adopt a more inflated view of myself, which in turn affects the way I treat others because now I see myself as the cause of my own success and therefore worthy of better treatment. 
My friend, theology matters. In fact, theology matters so much that Paul makes a direct connection between our view of God and our ability to relate to others peacefully. Have you thought about that? Paul makes a direct connection between our theology, our view of God, and your ability and my ability to relate to others peacefully. Let me put it this way. The higher your view of God, the lower your view of yourself. This will in turn allow you to, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's possible only when you have a proper view of yourself and of God. And as basic as this may sound to our ears, my friends, we all need this reminder today. God is the great I am. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in him, we live and move and have our being. He is independent We are utterly dependent. He is perfectly sufficient in himself. We are painfully insufficient in and of ourselves. We can't move outside of his sustaining providence. We can't even think rightly apart from his governing guidance. We couldn't even serve in the church apart from his gracious empowering. So let me ask you again, what do you have that you did not receive If you know the answer, why are you acting, says Paul to the Corinthians, as if God were not in the picture at all? Why are you taking the credit for your gifts, for your abilities, for your service in the church, for what you can accomplish? Why are you taking the credit? Could this be the reason why you are having so much trouble relating to others? Could it be that you have forgotten that it is only by God's grace that you are who you are? Tell me how high... Is your view of God? How low is your view of yourself? And I'll tell you how well you can keep the peace in your relationships. There's a direct, direct connection between those two. That is his first point. The second point could be summed up as follows. Self-conceit, the root cause of all division in the church, is absolute foolishness, insanity, because, number two, It refuses, when you become self-conceited, you refuse, it refuses to accept, listen to this, the hatred of the world as a mark of true Christianity. The hatred of the world as a mark of true Christianity. Let me read verses 8 through 13. Listen to the, the, the tone of his voice. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostle, apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise. We're weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but... We in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slander, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Self-conceit, pride, does something truly evil. It corrupts our perspective on things. It distorts the truth. Self-conceit has the ability to create worlds of fantasy. So Paul sees the urgent need to remind them of the truth concerning true Christianity as it relates to the world. You see, did you pay attention to what he says in verse 8? Do you pay attention to that in verse 8? What is he telling them? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. I submit to you that he is not speaking about their true condition in the world. In fact, you will remember in chapter 1, verse 26 through, 20, through 31, that God has already said that he chooses what is weak. Not very many of you were of noble birth. Remember he said that? So he's not speaking about their current, present condition on earth. What Paul is doing in verse 8 is exposing their self-conceit and self-deception. They are neither kings nor rich, but they are acting as though they were. They were seeking status. They were seeking prestige. They were seeking honor. They wanted to make a name for themselves by associating themselves with big names and creating their own cliques within the church. Once again, it seems like they forgot about a very basic Christian principle, and it is this. Get this. In the eyes of the world, Christianity will never be cool or popular. So there is no need to pretend that it is. Stop trying to apply worldly thinking to Christian living. Now, you want the proof of this? Listen to Paul's own testimony. What does he, what does he say? Listen to the contrast. While you guys want to be esteemed as wise in the world, we are fools in the eyes of the world. You see what he's doing? He's helping them think through this. While you guys are longing for honor, we are held in disrepute. We are held in dishonor. And while you desire to be strong in the eyes of everybody, our present reality is that we are weak. You want to live in a castle. We are homeless. And while you guys are getting back at each other because of your silly divisions and your blatant self-conceit, we bless when someone offends us and we endure when someone persecutes us. You guys want to be kings. We are the scum of the world. Friends, this is not a Corinthian problem only. This is just as problematic today as it, is 2000 years, as it was 2,000 years ago. We still have the propensity to desire status and prominence and honor even within the church. I've seen it with my own eyes. This is still a problem. And Paul's words are just as relevant today as they were then. I've seen so many, maybe not so many, but I've seen churches go through divisions because there are people who are wanting more influence and more power within the church. A book came out several years ago, written by a pastor of a local church in which he captures the essence of the problem. He says, and, and I quote, in contemporary Christianity, much of the language is about success, health, wealth, prosperity, and the pursuit of happiness. 
We often hear God loves people unconditionally and wants them to be all they want to be. He wants to fulfill every desire, hope, and dream. Personal ambition, personal fulfillment, personal gratification. These have all become part of the language of evangelical Christianity. Instead of teaching the New Testament gospel where sinners are called to submit to Christ, the contemporary message is exactly the opposite. Jesus is here to fulfill your wishes. The New Testament understanding of the believer's relationship to Christ could not be more opposite, end quote. No wonder there is so much division in churches today. For if we are the center of the message, we're going to feel like we are the center of the world. So what is Paul's point? This is his point. The world hates Jesus. Therefore, the world will hate you. So stop adopting values of the world and start embracing the fact that now you belong to Christ. Your self-conceit is total foolishness and it contradicts everything that Christianity actually is. We are not kings in this world. We are slaves of Christ. So stop searching for prominence and prestige and status. Act like a Christian. That is his point. God doesn't need you in places of prominence or influence He is God. In fact, he already said that he chooses what is weak, low, and despised in the world to bring glory to his name. But they were seeking the values of the world. They wanted the prominence. They wanted the status within the church. That's what they were saying. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I want you to think highly of myself. And Paul says, no, forget about that. We should do well to remember the words of James, who said, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, the moment you adopt the world's values, you become its friend. You become its friend. The third point of his argument is this. Self-conceit, pride, the cause of all division is foolishness because... It fails to acknowledge the example of Paul. In verses 14 through 17, he says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you or to warn you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So after exposing their self-conceit, he reminds them that he's not out to make them feel ashamed. Although, let's remember that there is a place in the Christian life for shame. Actually, Paul uses this in other places. It could be the byproduct of confronting someone with the truth. So there is a place for it. But Paul here says, my ultimate goal is not to make you ashamed, but to warn you, to warn them. In love. So if division is ultimately an issue of pride, Paul saw fit to remind them about his own example. What is the key text here? I would say the key text is verse 16. In fact, you could sum it all up with verse 16. This is Paul's invitation to the Corinthians. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul here does what every pastor is called to do, to set himself up as an example to be followed. It is a high calling, but Paul is not afraid to do so. Now, let me ask you this. 
Isn't that a little presumptuous of Paul? Didn't he just say, you guys are having all these issues because you're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos or Cephas. And then all of a sudden he turns around and he says, imitate me. Could it be that Paul's self-esteem is a little low and he needs a little encouragement at this time? Isn't imitation a form of flattery, according to some theories? How do we answer that question? Well, we need to answer that question from two different angles. First of all, I want you to think about the fact that he calls them to imitate him on the basis of his relationship to them. Who is Paul to the Corinthians? Well, he said, I am your spiritual father. What does that mean? It means that God used Paul to bring many of the Corinthians to faith in Christ. Therefore, there there is a level of intimacy. He says, in fact, you do have many guides, many people who have influenced your life after we planted the church, many teachers, but you only have one spiritual father. So as your spiritual father, he tells the Corinthians, as the one who laid the foundation of your spiritual lives, I hold a special place of influence. But secondly, and more importantly, why does Paul tell them to imitate him? Well, here's the bottom line. Paul calls the Corinthians to imitate him because he himself is imitating Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read it. Uh, verse 1. He doesn't mention this in, verse, in chapter 4, but he does mention it in chapter 11. Verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So it is not presumptuous and it is appropriate. Think about it. Isn't that what you want from your children? If you say no and you're a parent, we have a problem. I submit to you that if someone said to you, a parent said to you, I don't want my kids to be like me. You would immediately think, well, what's going on in your life, brother? What's happening? There's something wrong. It is only right for Paul to set himself as an example since he's modeling the life of Jesus. So a Christian leader is only as good as his ability to imitate Christ. Therefore, self-conceit is foolishness because ultimately it is a failure to follow the example of our Lord who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. While the Corinthians were full of themselves, Jesus emptied himself in order to save them. In a culture of so much obsession over self-fulfillment and self-esteem, Paul is telling us, you're called to a life of self-esteem. Denial, self-denial. It runs contrary to everything that the world wants. Now, let me, let me give you the, four point, the fourth point, the fourth reason why self-conceit is foolishness. It is absolute foolishness, insanity, because, number four, it contradicts kingdom living. It contradicts kingdom living. Listen to verses 18 through 21. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. 
You think Paul was angry here? A righteous anger? He was. He's calling them arrogant. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Bottom line is this. To live as though you were a super Christian, thinking you're better than others or more gifted than others or more spiritual than others or more important than others is to fill your life with empty talk, void of any real power. It's like what I used to uh, tell my mom when I was a little kid. I used to tell her, um, mom, if you ever see a lion, if you ever come close to a lion, you'll let me know and I'll take care of it. I'll kill it for you. Now that's a pretty easy thing to say when you live in the city, right? (laughs) And the chances are you're never going to see a lion. At the same time, I said to my mom, I don't even want to be close to ants because those things are dangerous. But if you see a lion, let me know. I was like five years old or something like that. You know, even though there's nothing evil about that, and kids say stuff like that, that's kind of an example of empty talk. It's to, uh, empty talk is to make big claims without any evidence to back them up. Apparently, there were a lot of people at the Church of Corinth that were good at talking, but provided little demonstration of the Spirit's work in their lives. Not only that, but they were beginning to get comfortable in their talk because they assumed Paul would never come back to confront them. So there were people at the church in Corinth who were promoting this kind of prideful mentality, encouraging others to make much of themselves, to seek status and honor, and were confident that Paul was out of the way. But you see, we learn a valuable lesson here, and is this, the truth will always find enemies. The truth will always find enemies. True Christianity will always have its challengers, people who will try to distort it, modify it, and corrupt it. These are empty talkers. They may have great oratory skills, but no real interest in Christ and his church. At the end of the day, Paul says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What is that referring to? Well, I think when you think about the kingdom of God, you're thinking about a very comprehensive concept. But I think Paul has in mind here a very specific concept. And he's referring to the reign of God in the hearts of his people. The point is this, that those who are ruled by God, who are members of his kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, are empowered by God himself to live their lives in a certain way. I believe that's his point. And the demonstration of power is manifested primarily in the fact that these people who are members of the kingdom of God can imitate Jesus. And they walk in humility, not in pride. They accept the creator-creature distinctions. They, They are dependent on God. They recognize the hatred of the world as a mark of true Christianity. They acknowledge the example of Paul and ultimately of Jesus and seek to imitate it. And they are more interested in living the Christian life in the power of the Spirit, rather than filling their mouths with empty talk. That's kingdom living. Now, as we meditate on these things, let me just give you you a few points of maybe practical lessons as we consider this matter and bring this to a close. Here are some practical things to think about. 
we fight against pride and self-conceit by doing what? By growing in humility, right? If self-conceit and pride is the, the root cause of all divisions, we need to grow in humility. But we learn something important from the Apostle Paul. What is, what is that? Look at verse 6 again. He begins and says, I have applied all these things to myself. What does that tell you? Humility didn't come naturally to the Apostle Paul either. And guess what? It doesn't come naturally to us. So what is, what is an important point to, to think about? Growing in humility requires consistency and intentionality. Consistency and intentionality. Paul said, I have applied these things to myself. It doesn't just happen. You won't grow in humility if you don't apply yourself intentionally and consistently. I would submit to you this would be a good question for care groups Wednesday. What are you doing to grow in humility? What are the intentional steps you are taking to grow in humility? Another thing to consider is this. What examples of humility are you following today? Now, some of you are going to come up with the best answer of all. Jesus. I'm following Jesus. Can't top that. That's the best answer. But you know what? Here's, here's the thing. We all need tangible examples of Christ-likeness. Can you call to mind right now people that you are following who in turn are also following Christ, people who are giving you a faithful example of what it means to be like Christ? Let me just add one more thing. That is the importance of the local church because the local church provides you with people, or at least it should provide you with people that are actually doing this. They are walking like Christ. They're becoming like Christ. Another, another question that I have for you is this. Who are you allowing in your life to imitate you? Who are you allowing in your life to imitate you? I believe that the best remedy against hypocrisy and self-conceit is when you open your life up for others to see beyond just Sunday morning. Who are the people that are imitating you? Let me ask you another question. Are you satisfied with your Christian life? Do not answer that. It is a trick question. Just keep, it to your, keep your answer to yourself, the answer to yourself. Are you satisfied with your Christian life? If you say yes, that means you should not be. You should not be. I'm not saying, are you satisfied with Christ? I'm not saying that. Are you satisfied with God's provision? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, are you satisfied with where you are right now? Remember what Paul said? According to the Corinthians, they were there. They were kings. They had all they wanted. Where are you in your Christian life if you say, yes, I am fully satisfied with where I am right now in my Christian life, this could be uh, one of the signs of self-conceit in your life. Be careful with that. Another thing, can you live with the reality that the world hates you? Can you live with that reality? 
You see, the Corinthians were not willing to live in that reality. They, they wanted prominence. They wanted acceptance. They, they, they wanted to fit in. Are you still trying to fit in with the world? Especially, I want to talk to young people. Man, this is a temptation to fit in with the world. But let me just remind you, Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hates me. You know why the world persecutes the church so much? You know why the world hates the church so much? And they kill Christians all over the world and they torture them and, and they do all these kinds of stuff. Do you know why? Because they hate Jesus. They can't touch Jesus. So they have to touch you, touch me. That's the only way. Think about that. We have become spectacles to the world. We have become the scum of the world. And number, I don't know, five or six, is, is your talk consistent with your walk? Simple question. Simple question. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In other words, let me put it in practical terms. Don't tell me how many books you have read. Don't tell me how many theologians you can quote. Tell me if you're growing in Christ-likeness. You know why? This is why. This is the bottom line. Anyone can read a theology book. Anyone can quote theologians. But it takes the power of God to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. Are you seeing this in your life? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder that you are indeed the creator. We are the creatures. Anything good in our lives comes from you. Every good gift. Father, help us to act like it. Help us to act as people who actually understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. May this translate into our relationships and how we deal with other people. Father, we, we thank you for the reminder that Christianity in this world, it will never be popular. And we need to accept that and embrace this. That as Paul went around different places proclaiming the gospel, he was persecuted, tortured, slandered, offended. Father, may we never expect something different because we are not greater than our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered the ultimate humiliation on the cross. Help us never to seek popularity or to change the reality of what Christianity is. We are new people and we are here to celebrate this truth. Father, help us to keep the example of Paul and other Christians around our lives that are showing us what it truly means to be like the Lord Jesus. And give us, Father, the power to live the message of the scriptures. Help us to be doers, to see in us the power of the Spirit as he guides us in this life. Thank you, Father, for the work of Jesus 
and the work of your Holy Spirit in us. And it is in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.